This is Amanda Howell, and you're listening to The First Deal Show. Welcome to The First Deal Show with your host, Caroline with a K. On this show, we're talking about investors' first investment property. Join me for a trip down memory lane as we hear the good, bad, and ugly of that first deal. here caroline with a k with an extremely noteworthy guest because she is a former teacher so we've got the teacher edition here and my guest today is amanda howe who is a former teacher of 21 years who transitioned into real estate as an investor and also licensed agent she owns a company called the atlas homes and has done wholesales rehabs and owns a nice rental portfolio she also coaches people nationally welcome so much Amanda. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's good to chat with you today, Caroline. Yeah, we were getting into it before this and I'm like, we need to just start recording this thing because there's so much information and things I've learned about Amanda and where she's based, which is pretty cool. So thank you for joining me and we're going to kick it off before we start talking about your first deal. We always like to welcome our guests by kissing me and learning a little bit more about you. So the first question of this Kiss Me segment was, what was the first album that you purchased? Okay, so I had to really think about this one. Um, This is going to date me. Like you thought your last guest was old. Here we go. So I bought Carol King and I had, it was a record because I had like a little, people my age are going to know this, like I'm 47. So they used to have these little brown Fisher Price record players that were all plastic except for the needle. And they would actually close up like a little um, briefcase. And so in 1980, I was five years old and I got a Fisher Price record player and Carol King record. So that was my very first one. Oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? Yeah. So. And I actually saw the Carol King musical and I never even heard of her. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you would know who she was. So I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you do. Yeah, I, I took my mom to see her on Broadway because my mom knows who she is. And then, she, you know, she really enjoyed it. I'm like, oh, this music's not half bad. So yeah, I was rocking to it when I was five years old, for sure. So oh, cool. And I had no idea that Fisher Price even made like those little records. That's really neat. Um, Okay, awesome. So the next question's a little bit more real estate related. So what was the biggest challenge that held you back from investing in real estate? Mindset, a hundred percent mindset and a little, little bit of ego, but mostly mindset. Um, and, and today I still, I coach a lot and I work with, you know, real estate investors who are just starting out. And I think it's the most important component is, is the mindset for sure. Awesome. And what is something new that you learned or did during the pandemic that others might not know about you? Boy, the pandemic. It was such a crazy time. Um, I learned, okay, like personally, what did I do? Or um, It can go either. Either way. Okay. Well, I worked a lot during the pandemic. And so, I mean, there was one point where like seven or eight weeks, I didn't take a day off. I was even working weekends. And so our market really exploded it didn't start out that way. Like whenever we had the quarantine in March of 2020 for eight weeks, our company didn't make a dollar. 
um, because everything was shut down. And so I had a team, I think of six total at the time. And so we just immediately sprung into action as far like I knew I anticipated, I started investing in 2008. And so when you have those huge like shifts in the market, you have to just sit down and grit your teeth and say like, what am I made of and how are we going to pivot? And so we immediately did like PPP loans because all my employees were 1099s. Um, then I got in touch with all my contractors and helped them fill out PPP loans because I needed them to stay solvent during that time. And at the time we were wholesaling mostly. And so one thing that we did is we created a directory. We called all the lenders in town to see who was still lending because we had deals, but our buyers are like, we don't have any money. And I'm like, okay, here you go. Here's a spreadsheet. These folks are still lending. And what was great about that is, you know, in those stressful times, and we saw it in 2008, the big companies go away. Like the iBuyers go away, the hedge funds go away, you know, Zillow goes away. Oh, we're not buying anymore. And so um, it's really about relationships. And if you're an experienced investor, you can get through the hard times if you have those relationships. Mm. So, yeah. so I think that was probably, it was just busy. I, I mean, I know there are so many other components and emotional things and whatever, but for the most part, I was just really, really busy. I mean, it sounds like although you left the classroom, you really took the things that you learned as far as cultivating a community and doing that with in investing and like teaching your contractor how to apply for a loan. Like most investors probably wouldn't do that, you know? Well, and I think um, the teacher mindset of like we will our kids come first and whatever it takes Whenever you apply that to business, it's dangerous because like you can just do anything. Um, I joke that like I would hire any former teacher or anybody who's like worked in a restaurant, like wait staff, because those are the two folks. You just can't rattle them, man. I mean, they'll they'll come back. They they'll hustle. They'll work hard. And so I think teachers are so undervalued. It just makes me sick. Um, and it has been exciting to apply everything that I learned in a very successful, rewarding career and move it over to real estate. So, yeah, that's great. And so finally, what is your favorite quote? So I, I'm going to say this is so bad because I'm going to quote myself, but this is the one that, um, I, I just say it over and over again. And if it was something I, it's what I'm known for is I just say, you're only as good as your reputation and your relationships, period. Hmm. Um, and so especially, and, and that applies to so many things, but especially the real estate community is really small. Um, I know it's big and I know, you know, like we, we know investors all over the country, but it's really small and it's really symbiotic. And so if you're not worthy, if you don't have a good reputation, if you don't have integrity, they're going to sniff it out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's my, my go-to quote, I guess. Yeah, no, I like that. It's funny you say that because I was, um, the previous guest that I had on, we actually had a conversation about, we were talking about the same person, but we didn't know. And in two totally different lights. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm going to have to figure out who that was. Cause I listened to that edition and I probably know. So don't tell me I'm going to, I'm going to try to re-listen to that and figure out who it was. That's so funny. And cause everybody she name dropped, I knew as well. Um, oh, I don't know that it was someone we mentioned on the episode or something oh, we talked okay. about offline. Yeah. Okay. But, perfect. Yeah. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. So with all that being said, I 
didn't mention where you're from on purpose because I like to ask the guests to kind of say where they're from and where they're investing. So where are you based and where are you actively investing? I am based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's my hometown. It's where I was raised. And this is where I invest. And even to the point where I barely go out in the burbs of Tulsa, it's just I like being in my community I like being in my neighborhood. I like going to meet sellers and walk the properties. And so it's funny because um, when I first started, I had all this ambition of I wanted to be in multiple markets. And and that's just not what I want. It, it evolved very naturally. And we do fantastic in our little niche market. And I absolutely love being able to be in my hometown and, and be of service too. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. You're essentially reinvesting where you live, which is, you know, they always say start local, stay local. So that's great. Um, so with all that being said, and we kind of got to know you a little bit better, learned about where you're at and what you're up to during the pandemic and all the life skills that you've got, what was your very first or your first deal? Okay. So this, this was a really tough one and I have to give a little bit of context because um, I was investing in 2008. That's when I started. I, I was married to somebody who had a lot of capital. And um, so we learned about real estate and that's when we started investing. And the thing I say about that, though, is we, we probably bought 25 houses in 2008 and wow. uh, maybe maybe 30 total by the time I we got divorced in 2014. And so the thing about that, though, is I really didn't feel ownership over those those deals, even though I was the one I was running them and I was working with the general contractors and stuff. Even the details of them didn't really stick in my mind until the very first deal that I feel like in my heart and soul is my baby was in 2014, which is ironic because I'd already done a ton of houses by then. But it's the first one that I purchased with my own money and I did it with my sister. And so um we basically would look at the pre-foreclosure list and then, you know, there's an auction every Tuesday. And so we would basically go break into the houses and check them out prior to the auction because we got to, we got to know, I mean, I'm just going to admit it. We were totally B and E. So, um, we would, so we go to this house and B and E breaking and entering. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm breaking the law. So, so we go, we go to this house and we try to get in and we can't get in. And so like the garage will come up like maybe, maybe a foot or something. And so I'm like, I'm going to crawl in there. She's like, no, it smells terrible. Don't do it. And I'm like, no, I'm totally going to do it. So like I rolled and then I (laughs) army crawled because it was like a pile of quarter. Like, and then I could hear critters. I could hear squeaking and stuff. And so, and then I get to a point like a couple feet in, I get over the trash and I can stand up. Um, (sighs) It was so disgusting, but I get inside the house and it's so gross. They had left the refrigerator plugged in, but then they're with food in it. And of course there's no electricity for probably, I think it was vacant four years. Oh my God. Yeah. So you can imagine the smell and there were dead animals in there, unfortunately. I mean, it's horrible, but, um, so I go to let her in the front door and she just, the, the look on her face was so priceless that I knew she was like, you have stuff all over you. Like you're so disgusting right now. And I can't believe you did that. And I was like, it kind of surprised me too uh-huh. that I didn't even think twice. Like I just jumped in because I just wanted it so badly, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, so she and I go around, we take pictures and it's just disgusting. I mean, it's, 
so gross. Um, we go to the auction and we're like, yeah, we're going to try to buy it. And so we bought it for $60,000. We bought it for 60000 And that was like July of 2014. And so then my sister and I go and we start doing, we did the clean out ourselves, like the trash out. And this just floors me. It was so gross. You know, we had like uh, snow shovels and the dumpster and it took us forever. So we do the trash out ourselves. Then we do the demo. Oh, no, no, no. It was in the summer. You did this in the winter? No oh, okay. shovels. You said you had like, to, for the trash plows? because it was so deep. Like the trash was oh. so like we were having to snow shovel it out into a dumpster. Um, it was just crazy. And so then we did the demo ourselves and the design. And I made so many mistakes. Like one of them was my, my sister is like an excellent painter. She is so meticulous. Um, she's fantastic, but she is slow, slow as molasses. And we went back and forth. We had lots of arguments about it. And she finally convinced me to let her paint it. And it took her three weeks to paint like an 1100 square foot house. So that was my first lesson about like, and I've heard some of your guests talk about this, just like evaluating what your time is worth. And, you know, when it makes sense to hire someone and it definitely made sense to, first of all, just for the clean out. I mean, it took us four days. It would have taken a crew one day, um, you know, so things like that. So she paints it. We also, this was during kind of like a little bit of a wood palette phase. I don't know if you remember that in real estate for a minute, but like people were making little built-in shelves out of rustic wood and using repurposing wood pallets. So we went a little crazy on the wood pallet thing and we made like all these, so we're cutting into drywall and we're making like these recessed shelves that we're hand making. Um, and so it was just ridiculous. <laughs> we, um, a lot of the work, a lot wait, of the work wait, you we guys did, did it mean, yourself. Yes, we, we would cut into like, the drywall. We would actually make these shelves and she did most of that by the way. I mean, I'm, I was just there for moral support. Um, and then we would, put them in and, and frame them out and stuff. And so we hired out tile. We didn't do our own tile. Um, we didn't do electric. And then this is a great story. I mean, basically we screwed up in every way that you can. Um, we had the electricians, I don't know why, but they left a bunch of the junction boxes with just like wires hanging out. And, um, we had pulled up all the carpet and my uh -huh. sister and I did the tie tacks and, uh, we were at a point where we were going to turn the water on because we needed, I think tile maybe needed water. I can't remember. So what happens is like when you turn on the water, the tech that goes out, if the meter spins, they're supposed to shut it off. Right. Cause what that means is there's huge water usage going on inside the house. So the tech, first of all, like a contractor was supposed to be there to meet him. Cause you really never want to turn on water to house that has, you know, not been occupied for a while. So somebody was supposed to be there. He was late water people yeah. the city comes early they i mean it's just perfect storm they turn it on and leave and it, it, it's spinning like crazy and so the house floods and those wires are like we're, we're <gasps> concerned like we're when i show up and i see water i'm freaking out but i immediately see like those wires and i'm like oh my gosh this is so insane like what is happening so run out and i shut off the water and then it starts to kind of like recede a little bit. And we had to call a restoration company to come out. And it, I mean, it was four or five days that they had to come and dry out the property. Yeah. 
We did not. Oh we did not. It did, did not. You have to redo the drywall? It really only touched the floors, but because the wires were hanging down so low, that was our concern about like electrocution okay. or something. Um, but no, we got so lucky. It could have been a complete disaster. And we were able to go ahead and get every, we didn't have to, I think we had to replace yeah. some trim. But the, the hardwoods, we were able to just sand them again. And we had our moisture reader every day so to see true. how we were doing and if we were going to be able to keep them. And it, it worked out <laughs> somehow. And one of the things I forgot about the paint is this was a 1950s house. So it had wood, like natural wood trim everywhere. And I'm super cheap. I used to be. This is why I think mindset is so important. Because, like, if you're a teacher, you have a scarcity mindset, Right. Yeah. No. Oh, 100%. Like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get these materials next year. Uh, let me make sure that I take some of it. When I first started teaching, I had teachers steal things from my classrooms. Well, I mean, it's it's like Hunger Games. Like, you're, you're thinking yeah. about, like, your copy count, you know? Like, how many – can I make enough copies for my class because I'm running out of copies? And, you know, do I have enough markers for my kids? Like, it's just always scarcity. And then you're not mm-hmm. paid anything. So – I was cheap. I mean, at the time, and I think it's important to say, because I don't think people realize this, but I mean, I had my master's degree. I was nationally board certified. And, you know, at the time, 20 years or or 18 years of experience and my paychecks, I was making $41,000 a year and my paychecks were $1,100 biweekly. Like that's staggering to me. That's $2,200 a month for those people that can't do that math very quickly as a, as a, somebody with your master's degree. And it's just not a livable wage. I actually qualified for food stamps if I didn't take advantage of it, but I qualified for them. And the house I lived in when I got divorced was actually a church owned it. My church owned it. And they did um, reduced rent on a sliding scale. And I was under the poverty level. So I paid like $750 and rent because I, as a teacher, I was under the poverty level. It's just insane. So all of that baggage came with me to where we're doing this house. And so I was like, let's just not do the wood trim. Like, I I don't think let's save some time. Let's save some money. Let's not paint the wood trim, which I mean, I I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud. And so many people kept coming into the house. We'd show it to them. They'd be like, Oh, it's so pretty. When are you going to paint the trim? And we're like, oh, we've decided not to. It's going to be fine. And like, you just talk yourself into something over and over again, even though everybody kept saying it looked like crap. And so um, sure enough, like two or three days before we're about to list it, we're like, we've got to paint this trim. It looks like it's horrible. Like you have this bright, fresh palette and everything. And so then at that point, we were pretty busy. School had started back. And so we hired somebody's Uncle Vern. That's all I'm going to say. Uncle Vern, he was an elderly man and the trim took, I don't know, eight to 12 days. It was just insane. (laughs) It just, and, and we were stuck at that point. You know what I mean? Like once he had started, we were kind of like, we got to see this through. Then we get it all ready and we put it on the market and we sold it in two hours. And we made Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. It was under contract in two hours. We bought it for 60,000. We sold it for one fifty five, but I think more we, than doubled. Well, budget. no, our budget. I mean, we we probably pocketed like thirty five, and and we split that. But I felt like that was fantastic on our first flip, and with all the mistakes we made, like we were lucky to come out alive. <laughs> so, 
But the crazy thing is, so I looked up that house today before we were talking to kind of refresh my memory. It's still our pictures that we took, and now it's worth like two thirty-two. Wow! Yeah, it's crazy. It's fifty. If anybody wants to look it up, it's fifty-three twenty-eight East Twenty-seventh Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and just check it out. Like you'll see all the wood pallets, the cheesy wood pallets we put in there, and you. All of that. So they haven't updated it at all. No, 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 no. I mean, it's cute. It's a cute house, but um, I look at it now. It's just, it's kind of funny how but how far how far we've yeah. come. I mean, yeah. I've probably flipped seventy houses since then, or okay. rehabbed. I, I guess rehabbed seventy houses is what I should say because we kept a lot of those for rentals. But um, so now we're very sophisticated. Like we have a profile of what we're going to use for each price point. You know, mm-hmm. oh, it's going to be this tile and this paint color and this countertop for this price point, and then another profile for a higher price point. And it, it's very much a business now, whereas yeah. before, you know, it is fun on your first deal to get in there and do all the work. And as long as you learn from it, there's no such thing as mistakes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then what, you know, kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier about how um, you had done several flips before when you were married and then you got divorced. Like, why did you continue doing it? For the income. Um, I wanted to, it, it was pretty startling when, when I got divorced, um, I had left my teaching job and so I was in between, I was, I was unemployed. So here I am with two kids and had a house. Um, and I had one rental that had been my first house that I had ever lived in when my kids were born so it's totally starting over. And I do love to tell this story just because anybody can do it. You know what I mean? Like literally I'm unemployed and divorced, kind of rock bottom a little bit. And I was lucky enough. I did have some equity in my house. And so I pulled that out and I used it for a down payment and was able to buy one. And so then I just daisy chained. Like you can get up to, I think, 10 home mortgages before they'll cut you off. I don't know if it's still that way, but, um, so I daisy chain and I would just do one at a time while I was teaching. And so that's how I got started. Um, and, and now I feel like I even know easier techniques to, to buy houses for no money or with other people's money. Um, but I, it's funny cause every time I look at my journey, the mindset is the difference maker. Like when I had a blocked or a closed mindset, um, I would stall And whenever I had an open and and pretty much our philosophy at my company now is just, you know, we're going to fix it. We're going to figure it out. It doesn't matter what it is. No problem is too big. Like the other day I told my team, I was like, I'm thinking about opening, like starting a plumbing company. And they're like, okay. And I said, but I don't know anything. I don't know anything about plumbing. And they were like, yeah, so who cares? Like you can do it because, because we have systems now. And because I believe I can, like, that's the difference. The difference between a successful flipper or a real estate investor and an unsuccessful one is I believe I can. And I go out and I just execute and execute and execute. And it's getting over that hump of knowing that you really can. So, and maybe if I didn't start where I did from, you know, in every real estate investor I know, and I heard Tanya talk about this on on your last episode was, you know, she talked, mentioned somebody that would went from bankruptcy to being a millionaire within 10 years. And I, there's so many different waves of that. Whenever you look at a real estate investor, just like I started this conversation saying, Hey, we went eight weeks and we didn't make a dollar. Like I put a loan on my car so I can make payroll. 
And that was just in 2020. You know what I mean? And now I own 36 rentals. And now we consistently do, you know, four deals a month. And so it's just, it's never too late to start and just start wherever you are at, whatever that looks like. And I think that's the the biggest thing. No, that's fair. And I, I think that's kind of a reflection of like, okay, we're in this wave of we're kind of in the downturn, but it's also like parallels life and that everyone's going to go through something like this and no matter where you are, it's okay. But I think we get into our heads that like, we can't do this or that it's too hard or it's, you know, that we won't. I think it's too, like just not being afraid to fail. It's okay to fail. It's okay to, I've been really lucky and I have not lost money on deals before. And I have a house right now that we found kind of like a catastrophic slab leak and structural, and I may lose money for the first time, you know, and it's okay. I'm going to lose money. I'm going to figure out a way to pivot. And um, I don't know. So it definitely, whenever we talk about this market too, I think it's, I just taught a class on this um, last week and we were talking about how you just have to pivot, whatever it is. So like, let's say you're in the short-term rental Airbnb, which we we own five of those. I know nothing about them, by the way. Um, I have a wonderful manager who does all of it and she's great at it. But, um, you know, we have to pivot because what happened this summer with higher gas prices and inflation and talk about a recession is bookings went down. And so we had to decide, okay, what are we going to do? And so we went on furnished finders and we talked to the local hospitals, to their property managers, to place nurses directly. Um, we're doing insurance stays. We have a whole marketing funnel that we are doing with insurance companies because if like you have a slab leak or your house burns down, those are great stays because they'll pay like hotel rates. And so we had a stay that was $7,000 a month for six months. Right. Right. It's crazy. (laughs) And so you just have to pivot because the other thing that's going to happen is in Tulsa, it's a very saturated market for Airbnbs. And so probably half the competition is going to disappear. You know, if, if it continues to be, these factors all converge. Um, And so you have to figure out what do I need to do to be successful? There's an answer there. I don't know what it is, but here's our problem. What are we going to do? And so that's an adjustment we're making in the Airbnb space. Um, Another adjustment, like in the flipping space, is we've gotten to be super sloppy (laughs) with all these crazy, like, purchase prices that are 20 grand over and and houses, you know, having 10 showings in a day or whatever. It's so easy. You can be, you can buy sloppily. You can not watch your numbers and then you're still going to make out okay because the market's been so insane, but that's not the case anymore. So you got to button down your number. You have to buy right and you have to be disciplined enough to buy right. And so what we see happening is like, say I come to you and I make an offer of 60,000 and you're like, Oh my gosh, that's way too low. You know, you're going to meet with three or four other wholesalers or investors and they're going to offer you 80. Okay. You go under contract with them. Well, they can't find buyers because the hedge funds have left town. You know, it's really hard to find a buyer. They're not going to pay that price anymore. Me as a flipper, I'm not going to pay that price. And so the contract bust, you come back to me and I'll pay you 60. You know, but that takes longer. I have to be disciplined enough to wait for it. And I will say, though, it's been 
it's been really liberating to just be super transparent with sellers and say, hey, this is the most I can pay. This is it. You know, and if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. We're not desperate for a deal. Um, and we always tell sellers now that I'm a licensed agent that we we want to list it first. Like that's the best way to put money in their pocket. And it's really strange how many folks don't want to do it, you know, wow. and, and they almost push back on you. Like I, that every meeting, that's how we start. If it's me or if it's, you know, somebody else, they'll say, Hey, we have licensed agents on our team. The best way to put the most money in your pocket is to list it. And then they'll talk you out of it. They'll be like, well, I don't want to do showings and I don't want to do this and that. And, and so then it's like, okay, well, you just did all the heavy lifting for me to do my sales pitch now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's weird. Yeah. It's a weird psychology. We noticed it when we don't typically buy condos or mobile homes. And so when people would call in and we'd say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't buy condos. They'd be like, oh, it's a great condo though. And they'd start selling us. And it's so strange. So we were like, hey, let's use that psychology on our regular sellers. And it's kind of creepy, but it works. They, they, yeah. they, whatever it is, it's like a reverse psychology. They'll talk you into the, the reverse they're, of whatever. They're justifying to you why they're coming to you to, for you to buy their property. Exactly. And it's way more powerful for them to come to that conclusion than for me to tell them that yeah. like, hey, this is the right thing to do or whatever. So, Because if you say it, then there's a possibility that it's not true. But if they say it, then it must be true. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've just also... You know, I think Chad Lundell, who's an amazing salesperson out of Utah, he he has a saying that says, like, um, every appointment, I'm going to go make a friend. And if I buy a house, cool. OK. And once we adopted that, we, we have check ins when you get to an appointment. And so our appointments used to be like 15 to 20 minutes. They need to be like a minimum of 45 minutes now. That's kind of our our bar. And so our appointments are from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Now think about that when our competitors come out and they're there for less than 10 minutes, we're, we're like solidifying that relationship and we're building that trust and that rapport. And so in, there's so many ways too, that that can be of value down the road because we've had houses that we didn't buy the house, but they loaned to us private lending or they referred to us, you know, somebody else, a different seller, um, it, there's just so many different facets of ways that you can be a value and network and, and every trans transaction, that's the word I'm going to use. We want to look at it and say, okay, how can we be a value and how can they be a value? And so sometimes that's not buying their house necessarily, but keep, keeping those relationships solid to see where you And can that kind of together. rounds it all out, right? Going back to your favorite quote, how your reputation and your relationships are key and crucial in this business and in life. So with all that being said, Amanda, if you could go back in time and there's one thing that you would tell yourself, if you could start all over again, like what would that be? That's such a great question. I think maybe, uh, don't be, don't be afraid even. Um, and also just sometimes we fear success more than we do failure. And so, um, I started my company in 2018 in October and then in January, I was telling the mentor in my mastermind, I like kind of freaked out and we joke about it now. We call it my scarcity meltdown. And I love that phrase, like scarcity meltdown. That's exactly what it was, is I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I'm not good enough. We're not going to make it. I'm not going to make any money. Now I have employees. What am I doing? I'm, 
so stupid. And he's like, you know what? Just stick with it. This is January. And we had like a meeting in Colorado in February. He's like, come to that meeting. If you still want to quit after that, I'll refund your money. And so I come to that February meeting and, um, we had our best month in January. We made $97,000 in January, but it was at the beginning of the month. And I was so scared because I finally had contracts. I had deals and things were closing and it was happening and I was terrified. And so even I was on the cusp. I mean, I could see the money coming and I still freaked out and wanted to back out and then ended up almost breaking a hundred K like, it's just, it's crazy. We are our own worst enemies for sure. A hundred percent. And I have a mentor who says fear stands for uh, fantasize experience appearing real. Oh, wow. Right? Like, like, that's such a teacher thing. Like, who came up with that? (laughs) That's amazing. I love it. Right? Because it's not real. It's just something we're literally fantasizing that this is happening, but it's not. Um, Awesome. So I, you know, you dropped a lot of really great nuggets for the 402. So I hope you guys had a pen and paper and we're taking notes because this is this guess, as always, teachers are love so sharing and willing to open up and give you all the knowledge. Um, and with all that being said, Amanda, what is, you know, if you're willing, uh, how could the 402 reach out to you if they want to learn more about you or just connect with you? Well, sure. Um, we, we have a website, atlashomestulsa.com. And so you could definitely check that out. And it's very, very comprehensive. It's got a lot of our philosophy on there and just how we do business. And and it's all stolen. That's another thing that I would like to kind of tell your listeners is um, I did not invent anything really that I do now. I just copied best practices, which is what we do in education. That's what they do in the medical field. You just copy what experts are doing. And so um, anyway, so that website is literally stolen. Um, take whatever you want. <laughs> um Also on Facebook, we have Atlas Homes, and so you can see kind of some of our information, and you can just shoot me an email or or private message me, and we can connect for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time, and that is all, folks. 402. Did you learn something or take away a golden nugget? Then I'd love it if you would share this episode with a friend. And I'd really also like to talk to you about real estate on Instagram or LinkedIn. So follow me at First Deal Show. If you know someone that has an amazing first deal story, or you just want to give us the dirt on your first deal, shoot me an email at firstdealshow at gmail.com and let's get you on the show. 402, thank you so much for listening. I love all of you and I will see you next Friday.